Like he is more fair than any of the sons of men in 2016. And knowing this is a messianic song, ultimately it is fulfilled in Jesus. Not only is he good looking, although we got to remember that even Isaiah says there's nothing in and of just looking at you that would make us want to, it's not your outer appearance that is, you know, there's no form or comeliness that we should desire you, Isaiah says in 53. But there's something deeper that causes us to be drawn to him. Not that he's homely, but there's something deeper than the external appearances that cause us, cause us to swoon for him, cause our hearts to be drawn. If it's Bambi, we're Twitter-pated by Jesus because of his deep character and his deep, great love. Grace is poured out from this groom's lips. There is charm. He also has a tongue of a ready writer. He is ornamented as he speaks just there's a dispensary flowing out of his language that speaks of a river bank that is just pouring out water of grace and we know this not only of Solomon who was a man who wrote thousands and thousands of proverbs and and psalms and things such as that but we have the one greater than Solomon, Jesus, who when he went about in his earthly ministry, people were astounded at his words, saying, who is this guy? And where did he get such great words? And where does this authority by which he speak come from? And so we've got a, a groom who is fair and who speaks and captivates an audience. Something I love about reading Ben-Hur is you've got this guy, Judah, who is living at the time of Jesus. He totally sees the tension of the Roman Empire over the Jewish people. He's waiting for the Messiah to come. Who could it be? I've got an army together to join him so we can beat back the Romans. Who could it be? Maybe it's this guy because when he talks, we're captivated by him. But when is he going to do something like militarily so that we can take over? But, but you know, I don't know. Whatever he's saying, I've got to hear him. And look at the people coming around to hear him. Because he has grace pouring out of his lips. The opposite is true of the heart that hasn't found this groom. The opposite is true, as Romans tells us, that the unsaved man has altogether become unprofitable. And it says that his throat is like an open tomb, right? When he talks, it's just like, man, there's just something selfish or foul or prideful or arrogant or out of order in what you're saying. With your tongues, you're practicing deceit. The poison of asps or poisonous snakes is under their lips and their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And yet with Jesus, grace is bubbling over the riverbanks of his mouth. And then we have in our psalm, therefore, because of that, God has blessed you forever. 
Elohim has praised and filled you with strength and adorned you for the duration of the future, for everlasting and for eternity. We know that that's not Solomon that's been adorned for everlasting and for eternity. It's for the one who has the true grace flowing from his lips, the gospel of grace. And so verse 3 says, Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. I like this verse. I like this equipping for battle and strapping on the sword. You mighty one. Speaks of someone who is manly and vigorous. He's a hero. He's a champion. Spurgeon says, hero worship in this case alone is commendable because he is mighty to save and mighty to love. When all of our mighty heroes, the Navy SEALs and the Army Rangers, and of course, Troop B out of Bend, right? Am I right? Troop B Cavalry? Yeah. When they stand there with their M16, you know, strapped to them, and they've got their pistol on and their body armor, and they're ready, you know, you see the pictures and they're just like, I got my stuff, you know? And you're like, you're a stallion. Like, go get him. It's the same with Jesus. He, as the Messiah, is girded for battle. He is a champion. He is a victor. He is the one who's worthy of hero worship. And when he gets going, everyone is in awe and is cheering. We multiply this exponentially to our king of kings. Revelation tells us of the day that he gets a going as the mighty conqueror, all girded up with his sword for battle. And it says in Revelation 19, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. We see that he's girded for battle as well. That with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so here we have our champion, church. We have our groom who is mighty and vigorous and ready to go conquer. He will come again conquering and to conquer, though his first coming was one of humility. He came uh, born in a, in a manger. He came riding on a donkey. He came with no former comeliness that when we saw him, we would just desire him from outward appearance. But when he comes again, it will be on a white stallion and he will have his sword and he will come to bring vengeance on all of those who oppose him. 
It says in verse 4, And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. So he's girded for battle. He's going out on his stallion. And he's riding in majesty, riding prosperously. He will ride that white horse in his coming. He will mount it. And climb upon it with force. And he will make his entry there as you study eschatology over the valley of Armageddon. With that sword, he will conquer. Revelation says he had a white horse. And he was called faithful and true. And it was in righteousness that he makes war. Just as in our psalm, we see that he comes prosperously right prosperously writing because of truth and humility and righteousness. Truth, trustworthiness, faithfulness. He comes in humility as he came with a condescension to meet us at our level and to save us out of our sin. He came in righteousness, what was accurate and honest and just something that we long for in a leader that it doesn't appear we're going to get this year people sorry so let's look to our king of kings and say even so come lord jesus come quickly because we know when you do you will come in truth you will come in humility not really seeing that sorry and you will come in righteousness I like what Spurgeon says, that these are the three noble chargers to draw the war chariot of the gospel. Yeah! <laughs> yeah, truth! Yeah, humility! Get on there, boy! Get on righteousness! And the right hand of his military force will teach awesome things. Verse 5, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people's fall under you. When he speaks that day, when he speaks forth, when he comes again, when Messiah comes, his weapon will come out of his mouth. He, that just speaks of the sword of his mouth. When he says stuff, men will die. And we see that, and it's interesting, as you go to Israel, you go and you drive through the valley of the Armageddon. Three times I've driven through this valley, and it is such a lush valley. There's incredible agriculture, and it's interesting because Jesus prophesies to us that, that uh, the blood from this great battle will rise up to the horse's bridle on that day. When he comes conquering and to conquer, that is the, the slaughter that will take place of the wicked peoples, the wicked nations, those that would come and try to be their own God and do away with Yahweh, with Elohim, and with the Son of God who will come in, in victory. And the blood will rise to the horse's bridle. Revelation 19, 17 through 21 says, I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, captains and mighty men, flesh of horses and those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. And I saw a beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, 
and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. They were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And so when our king shoots out his arrows, they are sharp and they hit the heart. Now this is true in the eschatological sense where men will die, but it is also true when the word of God goes forth even on a Sunday morning such as today and it pierces the hearts of men. As Hebrews said, when the sword of the Lord goes forth, it is sharper than the surgeon's scalpel and it is able to divide between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. And even today, we pray that it will be a discerner of the thoughts and intents of your heart, that you will be quickened Convicted of sin and quickened to righteousness by the Spirit of God. The wedding song, what a wedding song, huh? Just starts out like, you are awesome, king. Then it goes on, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. If you've got a highlighter or a pen or a marker or just whip out your eyeliner, ladies, you need to circle and highlight verses 6 and 7. And I don't know if you noticed it, but the psalmist goes from speaking to the king and the prophetic Messiah to calling him God And telling God that his God has anointed him. God, your God, has anointed you. This is an incredible passage that the New Testament uses in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 to speak to the deity of Jesus the Messiah. That he's not just a man, but that he is God clothed in flesh. That only he was able to come and live a perfect life so that he could die a sacrificial atoning death with spotless blood to pay for the sins of the world. And many would say, no, 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 Jesus isn't God, he's just an angel. The whole point of Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 is to tell us that Jesus is better In chapter 1, well, the whole book is Jesus is better. He's better than everything that the Jewish religious system could give us. Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. He's better than them. But chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews specifically, the Jews love the angels, and the author says Jesus is better than the angels. In chapter 1, he's better than the angels because he created the angels. He is God over the angels, and they will worship him. In chapter 2, he's better than the angels because he also became a man, and he knows what it's like to suffer and to be betrayed and to be murdered something that no angel will ever understand and because of that he is a faithful high priest he's a sympathetic one who is always ready to give help for us and to pray for us as our sympathetic high priest okay now to just step back for a second hebrews chapter one jesus is better than the angels because he's God and created the angels. As Hebrews 1.4 says, having become so much better than the angels 
as he by inheritance has obtained a more excellent name than they. And then Hebrews 1.5, For to which of the angels did God the Father ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, and here he quotes our, our Psalm 45, 4 passage, to the son, he says, your throne, O God... This is the father speaking to the son, calling him God, is forever and ever. You have a scepter, a ruling rod of righteousness. It's the scepter of your kingdom. We'll get into the, Hebrews quotes it as well of this next verse 5. You've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. So we'll get into that in a second. But God calls Jesus the Son, God. And Colossians 1, 13 through 17 echoes this by saying, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. The Son of His love is in whom we have redemption through His blood. It's the Son's blood that has redeemed us from our sin, purchased us from the slavery that sin has sucked us into. And then he also uh, is the uh, brought, bringing forgiveness of sins. Jesus, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God. It's the word image is the word icon, which means exact likeness of the image of God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Oh, 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 he's not God. He was born. No, no, no. It means first ranked. As of a firstborn son, he is the first ranked over all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created that are on heaven, that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, and Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things consist. The theme of Colossians is that Jesus has preeminence. The theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Lift him up. And Psalm 45 would be used by this writer, by the author of Hebrews, to say, don't even think that Jesus is just some angel, some created being. He is worshipped because he is God. And Jesus would use the same reasoning. He takes, Jesus uses the same scripture that Hebrews uses in quoting the Psalms. And Jesus asks the religious Jews, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, we all know that the Messiah, the Christ, would be the son of David. That is clear. But Jesus would say, David said himself in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, this is Jesus reasoning, David calls him Lord. How is he his son? Because David knew 
through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just as the sons of Korah did writing this psalm with the pen of a ready writer, that Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, was going to be much more than some worldly champion. He was going to be God. And the whole book of John, you just start out reading in chapter 1, and you see that Jesus was in the beginning with God, and he created. Nothing was made that he didn't make. And the whole theme of John is that Jesus is deity. And Jesus would die, the book of John tells us, because of blasphemy. The Jews would accuse him of blasphemy because he, in saying that he's the son of God, made himself equal with God. Even Jacob Neusner, who is a, he's a, a, the late Jacob Neusner, he's passed away, one of the most highly respected Hebrew scholars from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. This man was not born again. This man did not kneel before Jesus as the Messiah. But even he says that scripture does say that at some point in human history, God will become flesh and dwell among men. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus. Therefore, God your God has anointed you. We also see that this Jesus would be one that would love righteousness and hate wickedness. In Isaiah 5.20 it says, Woe to those who call good evil and evil good, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those, and those are the majority of our leaders today. They call evil good, and good evil. doesn't take very long on any news network to find that that's the case of the political climate of our nation. But we have Jesus, who was prophesied of in Psalm chapter 40, who said, Behold, I come. In the whole of the scroll of the book, it is written of me, Genesis through Malachi. I delight to do your will, O oh my God, and your law is written in my heart. It's believed that Psalm 40, that prophecy that I just read, were the final words of Jesus, kind of before he got into the, the capsule and like closed it, put on his little space outfit, and then shot through into Mary's, you know, I don't know how it worked, you know, but <clears throat> something like that, I think. Don't quote me on that, by the way. It could get weird. Uh, those were the last words, like looking at the Father, realizing that from the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, he was already the lamb that had been slain for the sins of the world. This was always the plan that he was going to come and he's going to die and lay down his life for the sins of the world, that the Father would be glorified in the giving of his Son to lay down his life to redeem a bunch of sinners. And he would say... Sacrifice an offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. I am willing to go and to be obedient and die by our creation so that we can save these stinking people down here. No, it's not, not the right theme. But that we can be reconciled to them. <laughs> something like that. And therefore, 
Then we come to the therefore. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. Because of that willing, voluntary submission to the will of the equal in value Father, because of that, God the Father anoints God the Son with God the Holy Spirit for the work of redemption. What has he been anointed with? The oil of gladness more than your companions. Jesus was anointed with the spirit of joy and jubilee. I hate that we all think of Jesus so often as just this like, as I just did, like, oh, stupid people are going to go redeem him. That wasn't right. I apologize. I apologize. But we think of Jesus that way. And I remember in high school at a youth camp watching this video of Matthew. It's verse by verse through Matthew, and Jesus is acting it out. Not real Jesus, fake Jesus, okay? He's acting it out. And this actor who plays Jesus is just like, <laughs> you know? Like, it is, it is so watchable because you're like, Man, I, I could follow this guy. I mean, like, a Jesus that's smiling, I could follow this guy. And people did. They noticed that his speech was gracious. Verse 8. All of your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia <clears throat> out of iry palaces by which they've made you glad. At the marriage supper of the Lamb and for all eternity, our groom will have a wonderful fragrance mixed of all kinds of incredible deodorants and aftershaves. He's delightful to every sense. He's eye candy. To the eye, he's most fair. To the ear, he is gracious. And to the spiritual nostrils, he is most sweet. Verse 9 King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Somehow for me, when I see this, and I may be wrong, so just hold it with a grain of salt. When I read this, I see like the plurality of people within a single bride. There are many daughters among the honorable women, and then there's the bride who is the queen kind of cool that at the wedding ceremony she's just up and called the queen and she is dressed in beauty now matthew 25 1 says the kingdom of heaven will be likened to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom five of them were wise five were foolish and those who were foolish took their lamps with no oil in them but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps and while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there's not enough oil for us and for you. But go rather buy to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. This is a parable given at the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus is telling us all the things that are going to take place when, before the groom comes for the bride. 
And so as he's laying this out, he gives a warning for all of the virgins, for all of the, you know, uh, this, we have this wedding party in, in verse 9 of our psalm that there's many daughters and later on we're going to see there's virgins that are there, they're honorable women. But here we see in Matthew that those virgins, they've got these lamps and some were wise and they have oil in their lamps and some don't. And in the scripture, oil is always a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder that even within our church today, are there people that we all look like the virgins here? And we all are holding lamps. But inside the lamp, some have oil and some do not. We all look the same. We all maybe have a very religious appearance. Or it just seems like, yeah, we go to Calvary Chapel, so like we're all in, right? But the Lord knows that there are some here, there have got to be, that have no oil in their lamp. And Jesus says, watch, watch, what are you doing? You don't know the day or the hour that I'm coming back. Don't sleep and don't slumber. Examine yourself daily, Paul would say, to see whether you are of the faith. Does your lamp burn with the oil of the Holy Spirit? Do you have fruits of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you have agape love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control flaming out of your life because the oil is the fuel of that? Let the Lord convict today because he is coming. And one day we will be at the wedding and the virgins, the queen, will be there. Will you be there? Let the Spirit speak to you. I don't know. No doubt there are some that I think will be there that won't be there. And no doubt there are some that I don't think will be there that will be there. And we're all going to be amazed. And personally, I bow before the Lord and I say, Oh, but by your grace and mercy, overflow me with the oil of the Holy Spirit that I can have the door opened and come in by your grace, mercy, and love purchased by the blood of the cross. There are incredibly victorious verses that have been read. A king is seen with rapture. He girds himself as a warrior. He robes himself as a monarch. He mounts his horse. He darts his arrows. He conquers his foes. And then he ascends to his throne with a scepter in his hand. He fills the palace hall with perfume that he's brought from his secret chambers. Spurgeon says all of this as he says his retinue stands around him and that fairest of all, his bride is at his right hand with daughters of subject princes as her attendants. Faith is no stranger to this sight and every time she looks, she adores, she loves, she rejoices and she expects. I pray that as we hear, faith would come by the hearing of the word of God. That this would be no stranger to us. That every time we hear of our groom, we look. We adore this. Dudes that hate being called a bride, get over it. (laughs) Not sure any one of us are like, yeah, I'm the bride of Christ. (laughs) It's a Prineville thing, you know. It's a Bible thing, all right? Like, this is the imagery that he gives us to show us of his great, deep love that is sacrificial. 
thank God that he loves me enough to liken me as a bride that he would give everything for and did give everything for. And then we go into verses 10 and 11 and we see this address to the bride now in this wedding song. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. The bride of Christ is a bride that listens. She considers, she inclines her ear. As Jesus says to his bride in Revelation 2 and 3 multiple times, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the bride, his churches. We see that the, the word of exhortation is forget your own people also and your father's house. For a bride and to a groom, the groom is to make his wife his primary affection in his life, as well as the bride to the groom. As the bride of Christ, we are to make Christ our primary affection, and we are to forget the rest of our old life. All of those things that the Bible would call Egypt. He's brought us out of Egypt and into a new land, and we are to look forward. As Jesus quotes Moses in saying that, that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. In the same sense, we too are to leave and to cleave. Now, in the spiritual sense, that means we look at our past friends and our past activities and our past life, and we realize we've been born again into a new family. It doesn't mean we ditch our family, but it means that we have a new way, a new direction Although Jesus does speak of sometimes how deep that may go, if there's ever a choice, he says that the call of discipleship is to hate our mother and our brothers and our sisters and even our own life. That our love for our groom would be so full that the love that we have on this level almost seems like hatred. It means to love less than our love for the groom. Verse 11, so the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord, worship him. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we see that the adornment of our women is not to be merely outward. By the way, it doesn't say don't let it be outward. It just says don't let it be merely outward with the arranging of the hair and the wearing of the gold and the putting on of the fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart. That's the beauty that our groom wants to see. Incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. It's interesting that the psalm says the, the, the king will greatly desire this bride because she's forgetting her allegiance to Egypt and Pharaoh, and she's coming and she's, she's now part of this. And then there's this interesting verse that I don't use in marriage counseling that it's like, okay, remember wives, he's your king, so worship him. I don't go there. Wives don't appreciate it too much. But there is to be a voluntary submission and an order in the home as the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. It's interesting though that the king sees this and that is beautiful and he greatly desires that. And Peter says that that husband will see that in the same way when that humble heart is found 
in the wife, even here in 2016, Prineville. Moving right along and closing soon, I can see the eyes starting to roll back into the back of the heads. You know who you are. I'm just kidding. Uh, Verse 12. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. What's incredible is that we are living, as we are living the life of the bride of Christ, an incredible commentary spoke of how even the world will come and they will be bringing their riches to help fuel this relationship so that later on verse 17 will happen and all the world will worship Jesus. There's a tone behind all of this of that deep meta narrative of scripture that all of the blessings of God will go towards world missions so that every tribe, tongue, people, group, and nation will know of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a representative from each one will worship him before his throne. Verse 13, the royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgin, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. And so what we have here is the holiness of the bride. We've seen the groom, we've seen his holiness, we've seen his array, we've seen his splendor, we've seen what he's wearing, and now we see what the bride is wearing. She's glorious. Her clothing is woven with gold. We saw that earlier. The queen is clothed with gold of Ophir. Verse 14, she also has a robe of many colors. Where have we heard of that before? Right? Jacob gave like his favorite son the robe of many colors. And here we have a bride who's given this robe of many colors. And we see in Ephesians this marriage passage that tells us uh, what the what being filled with the Spirit looks like. Being filled with the Spirit will look like wives submitting to husbands. Being filled with the Spirit will look like husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and laying his life down for her. And then Ephesians also tells us, uh, verse 26 of chapter 5, Jesus laid his life down for his bride that he might sanctify her. That means set her apart from that old life and and set her into the new life that he's bought for her. He will sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word of God that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So Ephesians 5 is this incredible marriage passage, like spurred from the gospel. And in it, we're told that Jesus the groom gave his life serving his bride. He washed her, he cleanses her, he's given the word of God to keep cleansing her and he clothes her in something that doesn't have wrinkles i don't know what that's like really not to wear wrinkled clothing and something without spot that's i just never made that a priority right not, nope not saying anything for some reason i felt it was taken that way but anywho moving right along you guys did that to me Ephesians 5.32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Okay, so in Ephesians 5, we got all this marriage, all this husband, all this wife, and all this sanctifying that's going on. And at the end of the day, it all is a picture of Jesus' love for the church and what he's done for her. Your marriage and your future marriage, speaking to the engaged people out there, sorry, but it's not about your happiness. 
It is about you representing to the world the gospel of Jesus. It's about husbands showing the world how Jesus voluntarily came down, condescended, and was a servant to the point of death so that he could win his bride. It's about you wives being a picture of Jesus who even though he was an equal value to the father, he realized there's another role that's going on and he voluntarily submitted himself to the glory and the plan of the father and he said, not my will, but your will be done. I too submit. That's the picture that the world is not seeing. And that is why there's a 50% divorce rate in the church, just as there's a 50% divorce rate in the world. And you listen to marriage counseling out there in this world, and all that you hear is, you want to be happy and you want to be happy, so let's do what we got to do to make you too happy. And oftentimes, you guys just need to separate because it's all about you being happy. That's man-centered. It's not Jesus-centered, and it's not for the purpose of God's glory. That's a whole other marriage seminar that we could do sometime, and maybe will soon. You guys, our order that we've seen in this psalm is the king in all of his splendor. We see the bride in all of her beauty. And we see the king coming and conquering. In verse 15, with gladness and rejoicing, they shall be brought. They will enter the king's palace. And that takes us to Revelation 19. And we're closing and I didn't type it into my notes, so I've got to flip there. But you guys remember we read the passage of Jesus there on the white stallion. And he's got the sword and the robe and the tattoo and all this cool stuff. And he's coming to conquer and to smite his enemies. And there's blood and there's violence and there's, it's a war movie just waiting to happen. And in the end, Jesus stands victorious on the earth and he will set up his kingdom. But guess what happened right before that battle? In the same chapter... Just a breath before, chapter 19, verse 1 of Revelation. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he's avenged her by the blood of his servant shed by her. And again, they say, Alleluia, her smoke rises forever and ever. I'm jump, I jumped behind a little bit too far. Oh, let's see here. Verse, uh, well, we'll do it again. We'll do it anyways. Sorry, guys. This is why I write things down in my notes. Verse 4, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God and all his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, a voice of a great multitude, the sound of many waters, as the sound of a mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, it's the Alleluia chorus of heaven. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. What is all this glory leading up to? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it is granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And what happens right after the marriage supper of the Lamb? Then I looked in heaven and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him 
was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Psalm 45 is essentially a Revelation 19, where we have the fulfillment of John 14. I go to prepare a place for you, my bride. If it were not true, I would have told you. But where I go, I'm also coming back to take you with me. So don't be afraid. Don't be deceived. I'm coming back to get you. In Revelation 19, in Psalm chapter 45, in John chapter 14, they all have this picture of an engaged couple who are eagerly waiting for the groom to come and get the bride. And that is the state that we find ourselves in today. We find ourselves in a state where the groom has come and he has paid the purchase price. He's paid the dowry with his own precious blood to purchase his bride and to give her oil in her lamp so that she can wait until his return. He's coming. Keep your eyes up. Watch therefore, watch therefore, watch therefore because he is coming. As the worship team comes up, As you come into this place today, maybe when you think of yourself as a bride, if you could do that, guys, even for a second, you look at your life and you say, man, as a bride, I'm more clothed in like um, leather and, you know, rucksack or something. Like, you know, I'm just like, like I am not in white clothes of righteousness and Garments that are clean and bright and shiny. You need to know this. If you have rested in the finished work of Jesus at the cross, you've been clothed in white. You are his bride, his fiance. And he has cleansed you. In fact, Isaiah says, come and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins were as scarlet, I will make you as white as snow. Just be reminded of that today. That God doesn't see you in, you know, just garments of filth. He sees you because of Jesus' blood. He sees you in garments of purity. And he has and he is purifying you. But maybe it is true for some who've come here today. And you really are clothed in a rucksack You really are clothed in garments of filth because you come to this place today clothed in your own righteousness, your own good works. And Isaiah also says that your works are as dirty, filthy rags. Dirty and filthy. And you are that Romans 1 guy who we were spoken of earlier, who what comes out of his mouth is just poison and it's like a dead man's tomb. And just, that's you. You reek before God. You are unfit to be within his holy presence. But the good news is today is that the wedding is still on. And today, if you hear his voice, you can call on him and you can be saved. And you can be clothed in righteousness and you can be dressed in his 
righteousness, his white robes. And you can join all of us here who are there with our lamps that have oil in them and they're burning. And we're saying, we can't wait for him to come. We will join in the alleluia, 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 for the marriage supper of the lamb has come. And we will partake and we will eat. And I bet there's tri-tip and ham there and it's going to be awesome. And then, according to my understanding, there's not only one white horse there, but there's a whole stable full of horses. And we get to hop on them. And Jesus will be at the beginning. And as Jude says, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. And we will join in the army with the Lord and we will come and be a first-hand witness to his victory over his enemies. You can be a part of that today. You can be a part of that. And as you hear this good news of one of the best wedding songs I've ever heard, you can turn and respond to the Holy Spirit's call upon your life and beckoning. Perhaps today there's been some kind of prompting in your heart, some kind of spark, some kind of like the Lord has opened up your eyes to understand his great plan that you know that you're a sinner and that you're going to hell and you're in those just dirty robes. And you've heard today the call to come and be dressed in his righteousness that he has paid for for you, that he has given as a gift. Will you come today with gladness and rejoicing, they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Come today with gladness and rejoicing. You know, sometimes the Holy Spirit leads to, you know, you need to respond by maybe lifting up your hand and saying, I hear the Lord calling and I just want to say, Lord, I hear you. And maybe there's times where the Holy Spirit would lead to, you know, man, stand or come forward. But today I feel the Lord would say, come with gladness and rejoicing because he has paid the way for you. Come into this wedding court. Come into join with the virgins and the daughters and join together because the prince is coming. Our psalm closes with, instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. We don't look to our fathers anymore. We look to making sons and disciples. And today, if you hear his voice, you can become a son. You can become a prince in all the earth. The final verse of our psalm says, I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever. Today, if you would come and just be dressed in his white garments of clean, pure righteousness, washed by the blood of the lamb, drawn and called and beckoned by his love, you will enter in with gladness and you will go out of this place today and go with oil in your lamp to make his name known, his fame known to this whole world, starting in Prineville.
going to Crook County, state of Oregon, country of the United States, and then the nations of this world. We people will praise him forever. Let's stand together. If that's you today, you hear the calling of the Lord to be a people, to be a follower, to be his bride, to be forgiven of sins, and to be clothed in righteousness. Sing this song with us of our champion of heaven who's made a way for all to enter in. Let's worship him together.